Hello and welcome to Crafting a Revolution, the podcast. My name is Katie Freeman and I'm your host. Every Wednesday and Friday, I am bringing you interviews with female and non-binary makers of all kinds from all over the world. Today's guest is Osa. She is a ceramicist, I think is the right word for it, but she makes some amazing pottery and she has such a really fun journey into the world of pottery. Um, and I'm going to tell you that the roots are in punk music. Uh, and so that should just sound super intriguing to you from the get-go. So excited to ha- share this chat with Osa with you today. Uh, before we hop on into the interview, though, I want to give a big shout out and thanks to the patrons over on Patreon. So thank you so much, Annette of 513 Woodworks, Katie of Women in Woodworking, Kevin Lefty's Woodshop, Christy Twisted Twine, Jeremy, Jeremy Spies, Sammy, Go Sammy Lee, Sven Dorsai's Workshop, Rachel Moody Makes, uh, Bonnie, Toolmom Bonnie, Toolmomstore.com, Laura Oakley Soap Company, Mary Lou Made by Mary Lou, Brandy Studio Obey, Lee the Rainbow Carver, Ellen Little Bear Furniture, and Ethan, Ethan Carter Designs. Thank you all so very much for your continued and ongoing support, helping me to produce two episodes a week, every week. And if you would like to get your name added to this list, it is super easy. All you have to do is head on over to patreon.com forward slash crafting a revolution and you can join up with the revolution pod squad right over there so hit pause go over there go check it out right now and then come back and listen to the rest of the episode with osa all right so no further ado let's head head on into our chat with osa all right my name is osa toy i'm 42 years old um i moved to sarasota florida about nine months ago I started making pottery when I lived in New Orleans, Louisiana, eight years ago. Okay. Okay. Well, I want to learn more, a little bit about like, where'd you, uh, where'd you grow up and kind of what kind of things were you interested in when you were younger? Um, I grew up in Virginia, like the suburbs of Washington, D.C., um, and when I was younger, I was really into music. I grew up playing the violin in like school orchestra. Um, I was like in the church choir and stuff like that. Um, yeah, like that was probably my main interest was like music and reading. I was a big reader when I was a kid. I was a big like diary journal girl when I was a little kid. Um, I never felt um, drawn to or particularly gifted at visual arts in any way. I was never um, like a very good drawer. I never um, saw myself being a visual artist in any capacity at that time. Um, When I was about like 19 or so, I got the idea of like wanting to be in punk bands. I started listening this was like the 90s so I was like listening to like alternative and then I kind of found out about like indie and punk Mm -hmm. through that and then I found out about Riot Girl, which was like this feminist punk um, movement in the 90s and that really inspired me to like actually get involved in music rather than just kind of being a fan And so I started playing in a bunch of bands at that time and I moved to DC and 
um, like I was working at a, um, a science magazine as like an administrative assistant, but my real passion was um, music and punk and DIY culture and like finding like personal liberation through, through that. Um, yeah. Well, I will say I can, I can hop on board to the school orchestra. Um, yeah. I played, I played play? viola, viola. viola? I was, yeah. I always liked the viola. I almost wanted to switch at some point, but yeah. I had violin, so it's too late. <laughs> Well, and the viola section's always like super tiny. So it was really about like playing the game of there's only two of us. And so my teacher would like every other year flip us from first chair to second chair to like be fair. And it's not like I had to do a lot of work to get that. Like I didn't have to earn a with violinists oh god there's so much more competition uh, i know yes first year violin yeah <laughs> exactly um and i always wanted to play the cello i think it's one of the maybe it's one of those things what you play you always maybe envy or want to play what somebody else is playing um, also like i was in second or third grade when they had us choose instruments and i don't right. think i knew what a viola was like you just think they're all violins right and so by the time i found out because i feel like my voice is more of an alto voice mm-hmm. so i started thinking like the viola would be like more i don't know appropriate or i related right. to the the range more yeah. than that like high pitched whatever oh, yeah. but um I don't know it works I ended up playing violin in a punk band way later on when I was like in my like mid-20s and it worked out because it was violin bass and drums so the violin kind of like took the place Mm -hmm. of the guitar and those like treble sounds Mm -hmm. were like helpful in that situation so it all works out yeah no I'm I'm on board with the whole the high pitch like that's why I couldn't do the violin I always like I just I was like no it's like it it almost like physically hurt my ears to like hear that high pitch. Imagine our parents like oh, listening to us learning. Uh, no. <laughs> um, but that's super intriguing about a violin in like uh, a punk band. Like I don't, I don't, I don't think I've ever heard of those two things like in the same sentence before. Um, like, so you got, eventually you got into her, like playing the music the riot girl kind of punk scene um like how was how'd you I guess how'd you find yourself getting into that find your way into it um going to shows okay like I just started seeing like going to see bands like Slater Kinney and Helium when I was younger and yeah just started meeting people through going to shows but going like being a fan was the entryway mm-hmm. I mean before that I would go to like larger shows and see like the Smashing Pumpkins and stuff like that like I said I started off with like alternative that you like could, would hear on the radio mm-hmm. and then kind of got smaller because I was like more interested in like the lack of celebrity culture in punk and kind of that like normal people making uh their dreams come true (laughs) you know what I mean like not having to have like a star quality but just kind of being like a regular person who has something to express and wanting to do that and not having it not having to have it be perfect 
mm -hmm. um, to like express like your unique sound and your unique point of view. So yeah, I just started going to shows and meeting people. And also I put a, an ad in the city paper looking for musicians to play, play with. And um, I'm still actually in touch with some of those people today. And that was like over 20 years ago. <laughs> Um, that I that's met awesome. through the Washington City paper, um, <laughs> looking for bandmates. So that's kind of how, yeah, that's kind of how I did it. Yeah, that's awesome. So what'd you do um, post like high school? Where where did you find yourself after high school? In college, um, I went to college at Virginia Tech for engineering. At that point, I mean, I was seventeen when I first went to college, so like really, really young, too young to know exactly what I was into or what I wanted out of life. Um, I just happened to be pretty decent at math and science when I was younger. So I kind of just got funneled in that direction um, by the adults in my life. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I kind of just wanted to get away from home. Like a lot of teenagers, I just wanted to have my freedom. And college was like the only way I knew to do that. It was expected of me. Like my parents are immigrants and they came here to go to college. So it was just really important to them that I go. So it was just like the only path that <laughs> I knew of to like get out of uh, you know my hometown and just like have independence. And it was kind of a disaster because <laughs> I didn't, I mean, I, I went to school for engineering but I didn't have like any passion for it. It just mm -hmm. was something that I picked. And I ended up dropping out after like three semesters or something like that and coming back home. And then I went to community college and I was kind of depressed. I was probably like 19 at that point. And I just felt really aimless. Like I just didn't know what I wanted or I kind of knew, but didn't know if I could do it, you know? And um, I just kind of got it in my head that I wanted to move to DC and start a band. And um, I got some advice from like a, a really cool adult, one of my mom's friends. And she was just kind of like, if that's what you want, just go ahead and do it. Like, don't feel like it's not a valid path. Like if you have something that you want to do, just try it. And I got a job in the city and then um, got um, found a place to live, you know, in a, one of these like group houses. Um, that was owned by this like anarchist dude. It was basically like a punk house, but I wasn't even really a punk yet. Um, I just happened to move into this house with like these like anarchists and like kind of progressive activist types. And they would, we were in DC. So it was like this mecca for people to come um, for like protests and demonstrations. Mm -hmm. And during that time, it was like really about like the um, war in Iraq in Afghanistan and um, protesting with WTO. So um, people would just like come and stay at our house. And this was kind of like this introduction to like what my life would become. Um, mm -hmm. Like, yeah, just being in a really like politicized environment, living communally. And then like I had band practice in the living room. And that's kind of how my life just kind of like started making sense to me. Mm -hmm. before when it was like your options are to go to college and pick a career I just felt so stumped like I just felt lost you know yeah I mean I, I have an inkling what it probably felt like but like how how different was the life you were making in DC for yourself from where you came from 
pretty different. I mean, I grew up in the suburbs. I'm an only child. And I had like two parents that were like working. My dad um, was like a construction worker. My mom's a, a school teacher. So, you know, I grew up in like a two income household. I had like my own room and my own bathroom growing up. And then I was in this space that was like communal and I had like several housemates. And, but for some reason, looking back, it never felt like an adjustment. I don't know, to some, for some reason, it just felt natural. Mm-hmm. Like, of course, this makes sense. Like, I don't know. I think that from an early age, even though I wasn't exposed to anything too different, I still felt like none of it made sense. Like mm-hmm. living out in the suburbs and like people like driving and sitting in traffic for an hour and a half to commute from the suburbs to the city. And, you know, um, like I, n- I never liked it. it mm-hmm. Even though I didn't know anything different, I just felt like this is not ideal and there must be another way. So by the time I found that other way, it just made sense, even though it was different from how I was raised. Like looking back, like my um, housemates used to like dumpster dive and like get food out of the trash and stuff like, like sealed food, like hummus Mm -hmm. and stuff that wasn't, it was past the date on the label, but it wasn't like rotten and we would just eat it. And looking back, I'm like, why didn't I think that was disgusting? But I think there was just something in me that was like, why would we throw away perfectly good food? Like it just made sense to me, even though I wasn't like brought up that way. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you feel like you kind of like found your people? Sort of. Mm-hmm. Sort of, I guess so. Or it was like the beginning of it. Yeah. Yeah. You, you mentioned uh, in your intro that you learned pottery in uh, New Orleans yeah. uh, area. So what took you there, I guess, from, from DC? Well, it, the story kind of goes like this, <laughs> like from DC, I, I lived in Portland, Oregon for seven years, well, six years. I also lived in Oakland, California for a year. And then I just felt the need to kind of move further back East. I never liked the East coast, but moving to the South was kind of like my way to get a little bit closer to my parents, um, you know, get a little bit closer back to the East coast. So, um, I moved to new Orleans because, um, after Katrina, I was living in Portland and there was an influx. There was like a diaspora of people who were displaced by Katrina that moved all over the country, maybe even all over the world, who knows, but definitely all over the country. And I ended up meeting a lot of people, from New Orleans in Portland. Um, All of my housemates just happened to be either from New Orleans, had lived there or from the Gulf Coast. Like I had a housemate from the Gulf Coast of Mississippi and then uh, another housemate who had lived in New Orleans and who had to leave after Katrina. And then her partner had left after Katrina and my bandmates were people who had once lived in New Orleans. I don't know, it was just weird. I was surrounded by New Orleans people, even though I lived in Portland, Oregon. And when I was looking to leave the West Coast, it just made sense for me to move there because I already kind of knew people. And um, I had visited there once and I was always looking for someplace like inexpensive and pretty and kind of like relaxed to live, you know? Um, Cause I feel like that's one of the things with punk is just like you create financial freedom by having a low overhead. And that's mm-hmm. what like living communally always taught me. 
and the rent in New Orleans was just pretty cheap in 2009. So, and it was just really pretty, like the architecture and the warm weather and the tropical plants and all that. So that's pretty much why I gravitated there. Also, I, I um, was in a relationship. So I basically like met someone and we were in love and I moved there <laughs> and the relationship didn't work out, but we're still friends. And I ended up staying there for uh, seven years. And then um, I met my husband and we moved to Baton Rouge, which is an hour away. Mm -hmm. So he could finish his um, degree. And then that's how we ended up in Sarasota, Florida. <laughs> we, he found it, we graduated, found a job, and then we came to Florida. Okay. Okay. So yeah, it's just been like, all over <laughs> um so I mean Portland and then New Orleans like so you were still playing music yeah the whole time okay. DC Portland Oakland New Orleans like music was my main thing mm -hmm. and I was in like a bunch of different projects and but not only that I was like booking shows um I had a show booking um it wasn't a company. It was just kind of like this DIY project called No More Fiction. And um, I wanted to set up shows for queer and female fronted bands exclusively and have them in all ages spaces so that anyone could come like kind of outside of the bar atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So I spent like five years um, doing that on a regular basis, like booking at least a couple shows a month. And then it turned into um, having a, kind of a festival of bands. The whole thing was like kind of to encourage um, women and queers to like participate more in punk because it's supposed to be for everybody. And there were um, a, a few, like a handful of people already doing that in New Orleans, but I thought there could be more. And um, yeah, so I would have like um, workshops to introduce people to, uh, like how to run a PA system and how to like use pedals and mm -hmm. like, I don't know, like guitar workshops and drum workshops that were open to like women and non-binary people. And um, yeah, so it wasn't just playing music. It was like also creating like a welcoming space for like mm -hmm. women, queers, trans, trans and non-binary people in the scene. Okay. A makers. So today's podcast episode is sponsored in part by Alicia Van Osdahl, who is the owner of Basil Blue Design Company. Alicia is a maker of all things, really. Her focus is on beautiful craftsmanship through woodworking, repurposing, refinishing art and sculpture. Her background includes 30 years of graphic design, logos, and branding. If you have an idea or concept, that and need a creative solution or graphic design, you can email Alicia directly at Alicia, and that is A-L-I-C-I-A at basilblue.com. Or you can visit her website at www.basilblue.com. And fun fact, uh, Alicia actually designed the logo for Crafting a Revolution. So that is an example of the impeccable work you can expect if that is something you are in the market for. So be sure to look up Alicia again at her website, basilblue.com. All right, let's get back into the action. Um, 
before I totally pivot to pottery, I want to ask what, um, why did you feel like that was, or why was that a passion for you, wanting to open the space up? Um, well, I think that when I really got into music on a personal, well, I mean, like when I was, I, music was always my favorite thing. And I was like any other kid who just loved like pop music or, you know, like I grew mm -hmm. up on like Paul Abdul and Janet Jackson and stuff <laughs> like that, you know? Right, right. Um, I just, and then, but I think that like what really uh, was like a catalyst for me was like finding, I don't know, like rock and roll music was really inspiring to me. Maybe it's because it was like so hands-on Whereas like with Janet Jackson, you're like, where is the music even coming from? Like maybe there's a guy playing keyboards in the background, but I just feel like I liked watching people play instruments and it felt more um, like obvious to me how the music was being made. And then finding like female fronted bands when I was younger, like people like Courtney Love or Kim Deal or Kim Gordon from Sonic Youth. Mm -hmm. And then like, Slater Kinney and Bikini Kill and then like the Raincoats and the Slits. Um, I don't know, like that for me was just like, I just fell in love with that kind of music and felt like I could do what these people are doing. It just mm -hmm. drew me into it in a more, um, yeah, it just, it drew me in, in a more participatory way. Mm -hmm. And I thought that I don't know, it was just, it just seemed like a, such a fun avenue for empowerment, like for personal empowerment and for feeling mm -hmm. like you can be an agent, you can do stuff, like you can make things happen and you can like build your sense of self-confidence through being a musician and like setting up your own shows and writing your own songs and playing them for people and like going on tour and I don't know, it just seemed, and then you can easily connect it to politics, like having benefit shows um, for like local causes and organizations and like playing for free and giving the money mm -hmm. to like a cause that you care about. And I don't know, it's just like all of the right elements. It was like fun and creative, but then also like political and empowering. And, you know, I just feel like as women, it's just important to have a way that you feel empowered outside of like, I don't know, like your looks or like your um, relationship to men or mm -hmm. any of the traditional ideas that are, thank God, like fading away. But um, yeah, I don't know. I just, okay. I mean, I just really like listening to like female fronted bands and queer fronted bands and yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, the creative community, I think, as a whole, um, music obviously included, but the creative community as a whole tends to be, tends to be more inclusive, right, where you get to interact maybe with folks that don't look um, or aren't the same as yourself. Um, how did you, how did you, tell me the story of the birth of pottery in your life? Well, I was working at a coffee shop in New Orleans and being in bands and doing all that. But, you know, I was in my like early thirties at that point. 
And I was definitely feeling like, okay, um, I've like had to restart my band like 12 times at this point because punk bands tend to be kind of flash in the pan. And I think that I was just looking for a creative challenge and wanting to do something by myself. Like, because um, with bands, it's really collaborative and that's where the magic comes from, but that's also where the hardship comes from. Mm-hmm. Like getting along with people, having scheduling people over a long period of time. Like it just was wearing. And I felt like the way that I could have consistency in a project was to just do it by myself. <laughs> and it was really liberating to be able to just go to the pottery studio and work on it with it whenever I wanted without having to schedule it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so one of my, co- my coworkers at a coffee shop was just like, oh, there's a ceramic um, studio that I started taking lessons at. Maybe you'd want to do it. And I tried it. And then that was just it following did you what do you think it was about it did you fall in love with like the the medium itself and what you were creating uh or was it that like you just talked about like it was something you could do on your own and create on your own I think it's all of it but also I mean I always I always want to leave room for the unexplainable um you don't have to put words to everything it's just like a feeling you know Mm -hmm. um but I did just love it. Yeah. And that was enough for me. <laughs> I wasn't asking myself to um, describe it to mm-hmm. myself at the time. Mm-hmm. I just felt compelled to do it. What was some of the first like iterations of what you were making? Just plain old pots. Um, okay. I was pretty, yeah, like it was a wheel throwing class. Mm-hmm. So they were like, here's how to pull a cylinder. Here's how to throw a ball. Here's how to pull a handle. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm looking at you now, so I can see you're in your, I'm assuming your studio space, your workspace. Yeah. Um, how long to, did it take to get to a point where you had your own space? Um, a few years. And my first space was my kitchen. I just put a wheel in my kitchen. It wasn't like a studio. Right. And, um, yeah, that was just like, um, this is like the nicest, most complete space I've ever had. And it took like five years to build up to it. At first it was like, I just used whatever space I had to do it. But, um, like initially I was just working at community studios and I had um, a work trade set up, which I like to talk about because I think a lot of people don't know that that's a thing that exists where you can maybe just go to your local studio and say, I would love to trade my labor for class time. And that's how I was able to afford lessons. Mm. Um, or not, I mean, I didn't have to pay for them. Yeah. I didn't have to pay for clay. But that's also how I learned to like make glazes and like load and unload kilns and just be around, you know, maintain a studio space and see what it took to, to do that. So without that experience, I probably wouldn't have been able to run my own studio space. I wouldn't have had all of the requisite knowledge mm-hmm. to do it. Um, so yeah, then I had like a kitchen studio and then we moved to Baton Rouge and um, I had half of a garage space. So basically like half of this space mm-hmm. and I made that work as well as I could. And then we moved here and um, 
bought a house and it had like a double garage space in the back and it used to be cinder block walls but we um put in you know the framing the drywall I have a sink for the first time before now I always just use like a hose outside Mm -hmm. and so yeah it was like incremental when you mentioned about the the working um I mean essentially it sounds like almost like an apprenticeship program kind of getting to immerse yourself in doing the work of making um and like you said maintaining a studio space um is that something that you feel like you said you like to talk about it because is it something that not many people know about about being able to do that yeah, I feel like I talk to people all the time who never consider that, that as a possibility. And then I think that um, just the idea of like kind of cold contacting people, um, like that's how I found out, um, that's how I had like my two apprenticeship, if you want to call it that, experiences. One was kind of cold calling a New Orleans ceramicist who just had her own studio and was like cranking out work and I just heard about her through the local pottery scene and like reached out to her and asked if she wanted an assistant and it turned out that she could use one. Mm-hmm. And so I worked with, for her for a year. And then the same with Hands and Clay, the ceramic studio that I did work trade at. I think that sometimes when a path doesn't present itself or, you know, I just think that people are used to there being like opportunities presenting themselves like an art residency, right. apply for art residency. But sometimes you can just get in touch with people and ask for a thing that you need and they might be in a position to help, help mm-hmm. you, you know, um, especially if it's mutually beneficial. Like I was making all the glazes mm-hmm. for the ceramic studio. We had probably like 30 different glazes and I would come in for a couple hours each week and just make sure everything was stocked. And so that's how I got my education on how to mix glazes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like free education. And then when I did go, I went to LSU um, for one year to do like a post-bac um, year to kind of sample if I wanted to go the academic route. And mm-hmm. I was shocked to find out that like people with BFAs, some of them had never made their own glazes or had never run their own kiln. Mm-hmm. Um, so I felt really good about having found for free in my community, those resources and that education. And so that's why I like to talk about it because there's just so many ways to go about it. And especially with something like ceramics where there really isn't like, unless you want to be a professor, there really isn't um, like a certificate or Mm -hmm. like, um, I don't know, a credential for it. It's more just about acquiring the knowledge and the skills, however you're going to do it. Mm -hmm. And so I felt that I had acquired almost in some ways, more or less, a BFA's worth of knowledge mm-hmm. without going to college for it. So I don't know. I just think it's an important thing to share. I, I guess I want to also like ask this question though, too, of like how you mentioned you would go and do it for like a couple, you know, hours a week. So obviously it's like, this wasn't your like full-time job. It wasn't, oh, no, it was yeah. all for free. There was no money involved. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, how are you still, I guess, at that time, I don't know if it's still now, like being able to uh, 
you know, provide for yourself while you're also getting this education. I had a job. <laughs> yes. I was only doing that a few hours a week. Like I was working, I either was like working and making coffee or teaching art lessons. Um, I was working, but I was taking um, like a two hour a week uh, community class. And then I was also coming in two hours a week to do work. So it was like a one hour for one hour train. Mm -hmm. So it was probably taking like five hours max of my week, mm -hmm. you know, but yeah, I was working. Yeah. Um, I just want to actually make that be heard because, um, you know, I think to your point, if somebody's looking for like that opportunity, like that residency or whatever to present itself, um, sometimes you got to do the, you got to do the hustle. You have to still support yourself and then find more like creative ways to get that education without, you know, going to school or without it being a, like a paid resident residency type of thing. But also, I just want to say that because I was in my 30s and had no, I had no fine arts background and had no knowledge of the handmade ceramics world, that was just the automatic way that I knew how to go through life, probably mm -hmm. because of my punk background of just kind of that DIY mentality. Like, I didn't know about craft schools. I didn't know about MFA programs. Um, yeah, I just didn't know about any, I didn't know about residencies. Mm -hmm. Um, so I just kind of forged my own path because I didn't know any, any other way. Yeah, any I was different. just like, oh, I love this. Like, how can I learn more about it? And how can mm -hmm. I get better? And how can I use like whatever resources are around me to like, you know, make community with other ceramicists and learn more. But I think going in completely ignorant about like the opportunities that exist within the ceramics field, mm -hmm. you know, helped me in a way because I just like forged my own path you know yeah no I, I mean I I totally agree like that really resonates with me because it's the same thing for my woodworking like I did take some f formal courses um but it was at community college I still didn't know until probably within the last I don't know, five, six years, that that was a thing that you could actually like go get a full-fledged degree in. I had, I had no idea. Um, yeah. And, and to your point, sometimes I feel, a lot of times I feel almost, I don't want to say better off, but I feel like I got just as much education, I guess, you know, um, and maybe better real life experience with it than like going the academic route. Um, I think if you go, if you know about and go the academic route, sometimes I think that can pigeonhold you into that path. Like you said, like, are you gonna teach it? Or, I mean, there's not really, <clears throat> no matter what craft you go into, if you get a full degree in it, there's not necessarily like, I don't wanna say like a job associated with that um, degree. So yeah, agreed. I mean, it's just different strokes for different folks. Yes. Like this is just how I did it. I look at the work of people who have BFAs and MFAs all the time. And I'm always impressed at how like conceptually driven it is mm -hmm. and how complex it can be um, in some cases. Mm -hmm. um, 
but yeah, I just feel like it's important to know that there's different paths that you can take and you can combine those paths. Like I said, I dabbled in the academic world just to see what it was that I was like, quote unquote, missing, mm-hmm. you know, um, and got that window in. And I'm glad that I had that experience, but I also realized it wasn't the path for me. Um, yeah. And I think that you can just combine approaches as well. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, exactly. So I want to ask about like, so now where you're at, um, is, is, um, ceramics like your full-time gig now? Yeah. Yeah. It became my full-time job when I moved to Baton Rouge, um, partially because our cost of living went down. So I felt comfortable making that step. Like I had already been selling my work for like maybe two years at that point. And so I had a pretty good, you know, um, financial flow, but then my cost of living went down when I moved to a smaller town. So I took advantage of that. And then honestly, I just didn't feel like looking for a job. I was like, I'm just going to make this work. I'm just going to make it work. And it actually turned out to be a really good decision because Baton Rouge was really good for my ceramics, my ceramics career. New Orleans is more of like a tourist economy. Mm -hmm. ceramics and tourism don't really combine that well with people traveling and Mm -hmm. um ceramics is more for people who live in a place and like want to collect things for their home and there was actually better art markets for me in uh, Baton Rouge so yeah everything just kind of came together um also the local media in Baton Rouge was really nice and really supportive and that helped a lot so um, yeah, that's when I just started being full-time into ceramics and, um, then yeah, moving here, I just, I just kept going with it. So. Hey, Revolution Pod Squad. So this week's episode is brought to you in part by me, your host, Katie Freeman. I am so excited to be releasing my first ever virtual class called Wood Stain Rockstar. In the class, it's for beginners. It's for those of you who may have been in the woodworking world for years now, but I'm going to teach you how you can add bright, bold, beautiful colors to your woodworking pieces. And it's super fun. I'm just so excited about this. And I really want you to come over and join me. So if this sounds like something that's right up your alley, you're looking for a way to add a little spice to your projects, please follow along with me at Freeman Furnishings on Instagram. And you can get added to the waitlist right over there. All right. Or, or, even easier, head to freemanfurnishings.com and right at the bottom of the front page, you can sign up to be on the wait list for classes. And I will send you the link for Woodstain Rockstar as soon as it is released, which means you will also get it at the low introductory price. All right, let's head back on in with Osa. So I also want to ask, like, you kind of mentioned like the ceramic scene or the pottery scene, like what does that scene look like? Like the people who make up that scene? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think mean, you I'm do know. Say, I mean, I'm just saying that because <laughs> like that this is like this is an amazing path for this conversation to take because like I'm saying, you know, I was in my 30s and I had no idea about any of this. I had no idea 
like who Warren McKenzie is or any of like the big known names, you mm -hmm. know, in the field, the field, you know. Um, and I feel like because of social media, we're aware of so many people who exist outside of that. Mm -hmm. um, it's just really, I, I, I struggle with trying to describe what the boundaries of that are all the time. Like I have um, a, a new um, young person who I mentor in town and um, we have conversations right now where I'm like, oh, do you know who this person is? And he's like, no, I've never heard of them. And I'm like, oh, like they're pretty well known in, in the field, you know? And he's just like, oh, like, and he's been doing ceramics for about five years since he was in high school. Mm -hmm. um, but he's still like unaware of like who a lot of these people are. Um, and so, yeah, it does make me wonder like, what are the boundaries of this field, the so-called field? I think a lot of it is dominated by academics. Mm -hmm. um, and then I want to say that there's maybe a lineage of ceramicists that people in the field revere, <laughs> starting with like Bernard Leach and then his apprentices and then who those people taught, uh -huh. kind of. I mean, I don't know how to put my arms around it because, and I feel like kind of an insider outsider, mm -hmm. you know, like I don't like to put too much stock in that world because I feel like it is like alienating to a lot of people. And there are a lot of ceramicists who exist outside of it completely and have love clay, work with clay and have no idea who any of these people are. No idea whatsoever. Mm -hmm. I mean, even these names that I'm saying right now, a lot of your listeners who aren't in the ceramics world, no idea who they are, right? Do you know who I'm talking about? Nope. <laughs> yes, they have power. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. It's just like, I don't know what the ceramic scene is or what the field is. I mean, there's like the people who go to Enseca every year or the, the same people that you see getting highlighted in gallery mm -hmm. show after gallery show or, you know, residency after residency. I don't, I mean, Do you I don't feel know like what the boundaries of that is. I, I don't know how to describe it. Do you feel like the differentiate, differenti I can't say that word, the differentiator is the academia piece of it? Do you feel like that's really like, do you think that's why they get highlighted more and more? That's part of it. I've also seen people without that background getting drawn in like I have a friend named Melissa Weiss who um you know has been making pots for I don't know like 15 years or something like that and she has the same background as me like community uh mm -hmm. you know community classes and and at some point when she wanted to when it um when she felt like it was a good thing for her and her career she was getting invited to like all of the galleries and to you know do this and that so it's not exactly that I think that's probably like 90% of it um like I said it's just really hard to wrap my arms around like what it is or what I guess is, you know I guess um maybe what I'm curious about is like you, you mentioned, I think you mentioned the word gatekeeper. Um, and so like the, the, maybe the gatekeeper is also about a measure of 
access and people even knowing like this thing exists um and that DIY versus the academia like if you're doing a DIY like maybe you don't even know about like how do you find like how do you even submit work to galleries or how do you even you know get your stuff seen um or if that's even something you want I mean you can be successful outside of that scene um as well and I guess probably I'll be blunt with what I'm trying to get at is it a bunch of is it a bunch of white people who are being the gatekeepers of who is important and who is not important or relevant when it comes to that work um I guess broadly yes I mean I think um it's just so it's so complex it's like it's like we're talking about a cloud you know what I mean <laughs> yes I do know what I mean. yeah. you can't like really like feel or touch or hold you know it's not it's yeah. like not tangible um I think that there's a tendency because the reality is that ceramics is a craft it's a folk craft people have been mm -hmm. doing it for millennia yes. outside of these structures Yes. Ceramics wasn't even an academic discipline until relatively recently. It wasn't even considered a fine art like painting or mm -hmm. sculpture or any of that other stuff until re relatively recently. So ceramics existed outside of that for a very, very, very long time. So it makes you wonder what the benefit is to making it a credentialed and specialized kind of field mm -hmm. where there's like hoops yeah. and um, kind of like a prescribed path. Uh, and I feel like human beings tend to be insecure and it feels good to be validated. And once you get that validation, you want to make sure that other people have to pass through those same hoops that you did. Even though they're largely kind of meaningless in the grand scheme of things. Right. Because like I said, unless you want to be a professor in academia, there are no credentials. Like I don't have to show anybody a credential for them to purchase a piece of my pottery. Right. They just have to connect to it. And likewise, if I want to teach on the community level, I've been asked to teach at places that I really respect and they haven't seemed to even look at my teaching background. Right. You know, mm -hmm. and, to, so I'm, and uh, to some degree, I feel like I've been offered teaching opportunities that were kind of like beyond my skill level mm -hmm. and beyond my experience level because there's no credentials. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So like, what is the actual point of making it that hard? Like, I don't I, know. I, think, then I, I also think that some people, but I mean, not to say that I think that like skill is an un unimportant mm -hmm. or that there shouldn't be standards, but the standards are kind of vague. Mm -hmm. They are kind of loose. 
And this is something I struggle with all the time as someone, like at, at some point people told me, buy from galleries. It's a, it's a form of education to buy ceramics from galleries. <laughs> and it literally has been. You have it in your head that you have to give the gallery this perfect piece of work that they're then going to sell for, you know, yeah. they're going to take your 50% commission, which is another topic yep. for another day. But by from galleries, I've gotten all like different levels of quality. I've gotten mm -hmm. work with S cracks at the bottom. I've gotten all different levels of quality from the gallery. So yeah, like the standard is just nebulous. Again, I feel like we're just trying to talk about a cloud. It's like so hard to figure out what we're even talking about here. Mm -hmm. That's why I would much rather just talk about like, just make it um, a space that is accessible as much as possible. Like just be free with information. You know, um, mm -hmm. I'm part of a, a Black Ceramics Collective right now who raised a bunch of money for uh, an award for another Black ceramicist. And we really were adamant about being able to offer to people of any educational level or and any skill level because we just want to make the field accessible to people without being like, well, you have to have this and you have to have this. Right. You, right. you have to be coming here with a BFA and with a long list of residencies and with a long list of shows. Because if you have that criteria, you're never going to create a diverse space because only a few people have yeah. had the amount of access to be able to have that long list on their CV or mm -hmm. whatever. We're not even asking for a CV. Right. I don't have a CV. <laughs> I have a regular resume, but I don't, I don't do a CV. Mm -hmm. And I don't, honestly don't really have anybody to show it to you mm -hmm. at this point. So, yeah, I mean, that's why I would rather um, like give away glazed recipes and give away money and help people who are interested and make it feel like warm and fun and inviting rather than making it feel like this like really difficult technical thing mm -hmm. where there's only one path and that path is an MFA and a solo show and mm -hmm. a long list of residencies for like, I mean, oh my God, like let's say you're like married with kids or mm -hmm. don't have a lot of money. Like the residency path is hard. Like you have yep. to travel and there's not a lot of funding once you get there. And it's just not accessible to a lot of people. Like not right. even a lot of white people, like mm -hmm. regardless of race, it's just not accessible to a lot of people. Yep. So. I, don't know. I think I think you at, I think the a question you brought up though that is crucial is like who is it who is it benefiting these systems because ceramics any kind of craft really um, has been around forever. I mean human beings have been making stuff forever and it wasn't through formal schooling you know, for a very long time, any of it, it was all right. apprentice, it was one to one teaching somebody, you know, for years, uh, to hone that craft. Or, yeah, or ancestral, like, yeah, down yeah, family. Mm -hmm. exactly. Um, and I would say to me, it's almost more beneficial to learn that way. Uh, because I do think in some of these, not all the programs, but a lot of those, like, um, uh, art programs you have they put a lot 
you threw a lot of material and it's not necessarily about honing the craft itself. It's learning the academic side of it. Um, so similar, it's like, you know, I've purchased like furniture pieces from, you know, from people who, groups who are revered in the industry. And it's like, and, and I can spot different, to your point, there's like a different level of craftsmanship in each piece. Um, and so I think it's like, what do you focus on? Do you focus on the knowledge, the background knowledge of like where all the designs come from and all that stuff? Or do you focus on this is like a, a functional piece of art and it's made well? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, but. Yeah, and then like, what should the focus be? I mean, I came to ceramics for like pleasure. Like, it yeah. is, like I feel like in this conversation, we're talking more about like the pathway to maybe like career success or something more than the experience of just working with the material. Mm -hmm. And like, that's the most amazing part about it. Um, so yeah, yeah, and I felt like there was a real, I mean, personally like this is just one experience but in my academic experience there was a real lack of joy mm -hmm. there it was more about um like the critique and the analysis um it was about developing concept which can mm -hmm. be helpful because it gives people especially young people um kind of um like a, a path forward yeah creatively. yeah um, but I felt like there was just a real lack of joy. And maybe that was just like the moment that I happened to be in um, privy to in mm -hmm. the program. But I, I just feel like clay is such a pleasant material to work with. Mm -hmm. And these conversations don't give you a sense of that. I mean, like the conversations, like our conversations, fine. But I'm yeah. just saying like <laughs> the conversations of like, uh, skill and quality yeah. and yeah. you know the path uh, to like this point and the solo show and the no doubt like I don't know that all just kind of gets away from the material and the I don't know like the pleasure that you can derive from working with clay and mm -hmm. I don't know it's like what's at the heart of, of what we're doing anyway and then like the connection that you build with people when they want your work and have it in their homes mm -hmm. and I don't know like hey makers today's episode is sponsored in part by toolmomstore.com at toolmomstore.com you can find any and all tool-based merchandise for all genders all sizes they've got mugs they've got shirts all kinds of cool stuff. I have uh, one of the shirts myself that has the uh, hashtag woodworker on it. And I also have a couple of the mugs that define what and who is a tool chick. So super excited with the merchandise that I have. I know that you will be satisfied as well. Um, and also great discount for those of you who listen to the podcast at checkout if you enter the code maker mom you will get a 20 percent discount off any of the merchandise that you buy so that's just toolmomstore.com all right let's head back into the action yeah so i mean you talked about your mentoring and making with clay i 
is it I'm probably going to get another answer of like talking about a cloud, but is it a matter of, is it a matter of the joy of the making or do you get equal or more joy when somebody connects with that piece? Um, it started off being about the joy of making because that's where you have to start. Mm -hmm. And I didn't actually know what I was getting into. Um, like, I didn't know what this would become for me. Mm -hmm. um, I just started with making the pots, right? Yep. And just the feeling of like the wheel spinning and the clay and the da da da, -da like just in the carving and all of that. And then it was actually at first, it was more like giving it away. Like I had, you know, just, I was making so much work and I was just giving it to all my friends and I would go to their houses and just be like, wow, you have like, 15 of my pots in your house that's wild you know because I wasn't even thinking about right. the quantity or whatever I was just loving what I did and then yeah through like gifting and then selling um it's just been wild how I've noticed that the people who intuitively gravitate toward my work are people who I just feel we have something in common like mm -hmm. on a like soul level like mm -hmm. they like my work aesthetically but then I don't know I feel like I come into a contact with a lot of like people who are like generous and spiritual and um believe in social justice and equality mm -hmm. and I'm like how is it possible to like forge those connections with an object that isn't explicitly about any of those things yet it just embodies it somehow so well I think I mean I guess I feel strongly like when you're the creator even if it's not outwardly intentional because those are beliefs or those are things about yourself you know that that becomes infused in that piece and so to your point like kindred spirits if you will are going to be drawn to that because they see it even if it's not outwardly saying it there um i mean and i so think that's something yeah. that when i first started making pottery i didn't know was going to happen so to your question it started off just being about making the objects and worrying about technique honestly like weren't like figuring out how to make a pot that wasn't like dumpy on the bottom or making a handle that like looked good and was comfortable at the same time. And like, you know, just like all of the technical concerns of being a potter, you know, mm -hmm. I wasn't thinking on like a soul level or uh, about like human interconnectedness necessarily. I was just thinking about making the pot, mm -hmm. but then like you're saying who you are is infused into the pot. Yeah. And then the more that you make and the more, it's more about generating a body of work too, mm -hmm. because the body of work tells you more than like each, every individual piece. And then mm -hmm. seeing the way that they operate in the world. Um, you know what I mean? Like yep. seeing the way that they fit into people's lives tells me about the meaning of the work itself. So, yeah. Absolutely. Do you, do you get connected to like, do you get emotionally connected to your pieces when you make them? So, well, it just depends. I feel like 
like to the point where I want to like keep them. Like I don't yeah. want to <laughs> sometimes. And I, I've just been letting myself keep those pots. Um, I had a much, much smaller house before this and I just really didn't have the space to keep a lot of my work in. Um, and you know, whatever, I mean, I'm like happy to sell my work to people. It's like how I keep uh, my lights on. And right. Stuff. So right. it's like, it's <laughs> great. um, not to make that into a problem, but, um, now sometimes I just see a piece and I'm like, I, I just want to have the, um, opportunity to get to know it and live with it and use it myself. Um, mm-hmm. and also have it be kind of like a marker of where I, where I'm at, like physically, um, you know, like having a pop that I made when I was like in Baton Rouge or New Orleans and yep. the pop that I made when I was in Florida or like when I made the commemorative urn series in uh, last December, mm-hmm. I kept one because it was just like, I mean, 2020 was such a crazy year and I wanted to make my own commemorative object and keep something from that. Mm-hmm. And, um, but then overall though, I definitely make work for other people. Um, mm-hmm. I make work with the intention generally that it's going to go out into the world into other people's lives. So in that way, I don't feel like emotionally connected in the way that I feel like I need to keep it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like I'm hoping to transmit something um, of myself or like the part of me that people are drawn to. Like I want to transmit that into other people's lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, this year I, uh, totally pivoted to, um, making, I want to say for myself, because it really is for myself, even if the piece goes out the door. Um, but just kind of free flow, letting myself make what I want to make, um, instead of trying to fit inside, you know, a box that I think some consumer wants out there, um, and it's been super freeing and liberating to be able to do that. And um, as a result, I do end up with a lot more pieces that are in my own home because, because I'm just too connected with them. Um, But I've also then be been able to see to your point too, like the work I'm creating now, how far it's come from, you know, three, three or four years ago, the pieces I was making then, um, and and the definite I guess to me the more spirit is in these pieces um which is why at least why I make and I think why a lot of people make um I have one I'm looking at the time so but I do have one other question like with the music do you think that helped you refine your your voice that could become infused in your work now? Hmm. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. When I when I got into pottery, I was looking for like a fresh start. So I wasn't really even looking, like I think a lot of people who know about my bands and my music and know about like the self-publishing and zines really want to tie it all together and the tie is just that I made them all mm-hmm. so there's going to be similarities going through but I I wasn't interested in creating um a line for people to follow or our consistency 
-hmm. with pottery, I was like, I'm starting fresh. And I wasn't worried about there being some tie to my past. I didn't mm -hmm. care if it wasn't punk, for instance. Like right, I was like right. kind of looking for like an expression outside of punk anyway. Um, so I'm sure there is a connection, but it's just hard for me to verbalize because I wasn't trying to mm -hmm. make that. Like I actually just wanted a new medium, a new start, and, um, but I guess I can say there's certain things like when I was in bands, I, I always really like, I really like post-punk, which is like, I mean, the most popular bands people know are like Joy Division or something <laughs> like that, or like Gang of Four or something with, and so with Joy Division, it's like really minimal. It's like really sparse. Right. Mm -hmm. And I always wanted to make really sparse music but I was always a little bit too noodly for that. So like I always made like post-punk, but a little bit more melodic and less like staccato than like most the, the post-punk that I was like really into. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like with ceramics, I have that same conundrum where I like, I want to make this like really simple object, but then I'm like, oh, but I just want to carve all over it though. And then I end up making like this more ornate object than I set out to make in the first right. place. But I feel like in the end, you know, like minimalism is challenging, um, but it also can be boring. And mm -hmm. so I feel like this happy medium comes um, out of my work where I like strive for minimalism, but then can't help putting a bunch of decorations on there. And then hopefully there's like a nice balance where right. it's, a little busy, but not too busy, you know, decorated, but not overly decorated. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I get that same feeling that I got from being in bands and wanting to make really minimal music, but never really being able to do it, never being <laughs> able to exercise that much restraint, you know, right. <laughs> it's the same with pottery. It's like, I thought that I was going to be making like this like, really simple work. And then mm -hmm. all of a sudden, like, there's just a million lines everywhere and stuff. So but personally, that's what I really enjoy about your work is all the carving that you do. But that I love carving, so that could perhaps be because I'm I'm a carver myself. So it could yeah. be just a a soul thing of like, ooh, there's design um, and texture. Um, I'm yeah. really drawn to texture. Um, all right. We are at the end of our time, but I want to give you a chance to let people know, you know, how how they can find you and follow along with your work. Um, I'm all over the Instagram. Um, Pottery by Osa. And you'll, you can find my like website links on there as well. Okay. Feel free to reach out. Yep. And I'll include the links on there uh, in the show notes too. So people can easily find you. Thank um, you. Yeah, and thanks for chatting with me today. I really enjoyed thanks, it. Thanks, Katie. This was a really good conversation. Yeah. All right, so again, that was Osa of Pottery by Osa, and I'll include the link on how you can follow along with her and see all of her amazing work. If you enjoyed today's episode and any previous episodes, please make sure that you have subscribed to the podcast 
head on over to iTunes, leave a five-star review, and probably most importantly of all, tell a couple of friends of yours about the podcast, help spread and share the news, really looking to try to hit 10,000 downloads a month right now, averaging about 2,500, which is awesome. I am so grateful for all of you who listen on a regular basis. I'm just asking, please, please, please go out and share with two friends get them hooked on the podcast, learning about all these amazing female and non-binary makers. All right, so when I am not interviewing and making podcast episodes, you can find me uh, designing and making furniture and other home decor at freemanfurnishings.com and at Freeman Furnishings across pretty much all of the social media. I'm active on a daily basis on Instagram for sure and pretty close to daily, at least weekly, on TikTok at Freeman Furnishings. Uh, So you can see what shenanigans I am up to over there and what current projects I have on the bench. All right, so it is Wednesday, halfway through our week. I hope you're having a great week so far. And as always, let's go craft a revolution. Shake, crack.